Thanks for listening to this podcast of Trending with Timory. If you haven't already subscribed, please catch us wherever you love to listen to your podcast, from the Relevant Radio app to Apple, YouTube, you name it, we are there. And if you listen on Apple Podcasts, please be sure to go and give us a five-star review to help other people discover the podcast. Anything you share in terms of episodes, whether it's texting it to a friend, posting on social media, helps to build up the kingdom for God to help confront the challenging issues we face as a culture, but with joy, with hope, and with an eternal perspective where our faith collides with everyday life, bringing eternal principles to help us live our life joyfully. So, what's trending? Bridging your Catholic faith with your everyday life. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio. The trending news is that I'm here and I haven't had the baby yet and I'm not in labor per se yet. So here we are. Welcome to Trending. It's great to be with you. If we have any uh, on air news i will let you know as we go along uh to which family will say you didn't call me and i'll say i was on air i couldn't uh, today's our weekly marriage hour on trending and we're going to dive into the topic of a lot of unrest in marriages right now around the holidays and how this is a common theme but one that we can hone in on a little bit and talk about how to pray for our marriages yesterday we were talking about how to support and bolster our marriages especially when things are falling apart even you know in the seeming experience of already maybe you're at the point where you're expecting divorce papers this week that's what one of you wrote in to me and we talked about yesterday on trending but we'll, today we'll talk about the prayer side of marriage in these difficult moments we'll talk about embracing sometimes that what may seem like a failing season liturgical season which Often people talk about that with Lent. Right now, some people are experiencing that with Advent and the anticipation of Christmas. Joining me today on Trending is Helena Alvarez. She has her latest book that's out on religious freedom after the sexual revolution, a Catholic guide. She's a professor of law at the Antonin Scalia Law School at George Mason University and works closely with the Holy See and the Vatican, uh, really addressing a lot of issues from the perspective of feminism and sexuality and where morality really meets the rubber when it comes to culture. Today, we're going to talk about feminism and its impact on the idea of a marriage being something that's permanent and also how feminism is impacting dating and relationships today. Helena Alvarez, welcome back to Trending. It's great to be here with you. Thank you for having me, and congratulations on the baby. I did not realize you were so close. <laughs> Thank you. Any day, any moment, seems wow. as if we're getting closer and closer. That's great. I want to talk about feminism's impact on dating relationships today. We're in this season right before Christmas, and often people find themselves feeling more single than ever before, and I think it's a good time to sometimes reevaluate what's going on in our lives and I think one prevalent uh, thing occurring for men and women is how feminism continues to impact the actual dating scene. And so I'd be curious to hear your thoughts of how you've seen from, you know, you work at uh, a university, you have worked with the issue of feminism, you've seen the rampant sexual revolution's impact on dating relationships. And I'd like to see kind of your perspective on how that's influencing these day-to-day -day interactions in dating today. Mm -hmm. Well, sure. Thank you. Um, you know, being a professor, first, of course, I have to make some distinctions. And I think people know that none of us 
Catholics, John Paul II and his successors, um, would ever, you know, say was a problematic kind of cause for women that saw women as equal in dignity, even as they're different from men, that would, we would never disagree with the idea that women deserve human rights on the grounds of being human. We would never disagree with there being equality of opportunity. When we're talking about a problematic feminism, I think we're talking about several other things. One is the idea that men are problematic. They're just, they're just intrinsically, um, they're lesser than us. They have unacceptable problems that we don't share. They are inescapably sexist and will always attempt to dominate us. Um, and and we have to constantly be on the lookout for small and large aggressions, uh, that we have to have equality of outcome, that if we do not have men and women doing exactly the same thing, that's a problem. And I think that's the kind of feminism that Catholics and a lot of people think is problematic. You know, so sameness. How yeah. yeah, those are the some, that's the, the way I would draw distinctions. And, you know, how does this affect dating? Well, I mean, if you think about it, really, dating is um, in its most, you know, essential form, thinking about whether you could have an endless series of tomorrows with, with this person. Could I share my life with this person? And therefore, a lot of these, you know, preferences, mindsets, behaviors that I've just talked about would really interfere with even coming to know that. People have to have an idea that the opposite sex might be different, but there's something really terrific about them. I mean, I always laugh um, after my husband and I had sons. I said to him, wow, if there was a way to have your kids before I met you and understand why all the things I love about you are the things I love about you because they're so cool in our sons, <laughs> that would have been really mm-hmm. great. Like, this is not working out logically. But you see these these traits of boys when you're a mother that just you know, win your heart. (laughs) And you realize that these are also the traits of your husband and men generally. Um, You have to have a disposition that says, yeah, they're different, but that otherness, that thing I have to bridge to, is a positive thing. It's a beautiful thing. You also have to have the idea, um, you know, that instead of being sort of jealous of your own prerogatives and always watching for whether you're being trampled on or dominated, I think the better view is, you know, each person is what? Is a gifted giver. (laughs) And We have to interrelate with one another to capacitate each person. Um, So I want to capacitate, you know, my husband to be all that he could be and to give what he's supposed to give and vice versa. It has to be a relationship of abundance and mutual giving as opposed to like suspicion and fear of Mm. domination. It's an interesting point. I think you have to be open to marriage. Sorry, go ahead. Well, that point in particular, I think, is important because I think that jealousy, that competition um, about my initiatives and my accomplishments and my achievements, I see it happening a lot in uh, before dating relationship could even happen where someone's just bragging and there's a potential person that they could be dating or that she could be dating. And I'm just saying, oh, my goodness, you sound so prideful. Uh, And you're not hearing kind of what other people are achieving or how other people might have an important career or important value to what you know you're doing today and it's like that feminist mindset that is good to be a go-getter right but wrong when it becomes so braggadocious and about myself that no one else has value 
Yeah. And, and I mean, there's a wonderful letter. I can't encourage people enough to read it. The Irish bishops put it out years ago. You can find it online. It's called Love is for Life. And they said, basically, and I have taken this to heart and written further on it, that, you know, when we talk about relationships, sex, marriage, parenting, it's really an application of the Good Samaritan to those relationships. So dating has to have every bit as much a social justice mindset as care for the poor, care for the immigrant. You know, you are making decisions with regard to someone who's very sensitive. In a romantic partner situation, people are very aware of things and their their feelings are so deeply involved. And you have to treat them with kindness, generosity, care, listening, all the things you would give to a stranger in a social justice environment. Why aren't we doing that to someone we're dating? It's just another form of love and care in the context of a possibly romantic relationship. Mm. Can you expand upon that a little bit? Because I think the words social justice have become such yes. buzzwords in the current culture. Yes. And you're coming at it from the perspective of the church. You worked for and in the church for many years, uh, being a champion yes. of true, authentic social justice. So what does that look like in the context right. of dating and respect for the otherness in terms of maleness yes. and femaleness? So, you know, social justice, if you read the best ever, ever encyclical on it, Deus Caritas Dest by, by Pope Benedict, and his, he has a, it's called personal legislation, a motu proprio called at the service of charity. I really recommend these to people, and they're not too long. Basically, we understand that, and this seems so weird, we have a God whose whole point is loving us and wanting us to love him and one another, okay? And we see, oh, in the Good Samaritan story, we see it applied to someone who is sick. What is that love? He says that the pinnacle of all love, the way that God loves us and we're supposed to love him, is like a husband and wife love each other and a parent loves a child. It's how we're supposed to imagine he loves us. It's why he calls himself the bridegroom. And he also says we're supposed to love one another like the Good Samaritan. What does that love look like? Well, it looks like you put the other person at the center of the universe, not just yourself. And sometimes in romantic love in particular, it's the first time you've ever thought, "Ah, I'm not the only person at the center of the universe. You are too. I can't live without you. Oh, my God, how did you get to the center of things, you know? And you have to realize that the way you treat them, the decisions that you make, you know, whether you have sex outside of marriage or you wait until you are committed in marriage, whether you stay married, whether you're faithful in marriage, whether you have a child inside or outside of marriage, whether you stay together and take care of that child, whether you keep the child, whether you abort the child. We think about social justice as how we treat other people in fairness and love and respect for their dignity. Well, can you think of any decisions that 100% of people will be called to make in their life that will affect more people indelibly, probably for the rest of their life, really deeply? Mm. The family is a society. We, we do justice in the family. We love rightly. And all of these particular decisions, just because they are sex, marriage, and parenting, that's not something separate from social justice. Mm-hmm. That's social justice decisions in the first society where, in fact, children learn what social justice is. How Isn't that fascinating? Because dad. we don't think about social justice in that way at all. We think about it as going out, you know, having to do with volunteering, oh, yeah. having to do with how people are being treated in the workplace, never directly at home where we begin. And that's so fundamental, Helen, I think it's profound for those who maybe are starting to think, you know, I believe in being a social justice warrior, but I've never heard it talked about like that in with regard to dating. 
and and I mean, many of us will have the opportunity to do some social justice. Well, my parish is collecting $100,000 for a man who's in desperate medical need. Social justice, sacrifice people, it's Christmas. Maybe you have a chance to take in a refugee from Afghanistan. Maybe at the Catholic worker, you have a chance to work. We all have some chances of that, and some few people get to devote their whole life to doing that, and we support them. But for 100% of people, the most important and again, indelibly other affecting social justice we have are these decisions, whether we're going to love someone faithfully, whether we're going to let the child live or have an abortion, whether we're going to give that child care for their whole life. And if you actually look, I write about this a little in my book. I also wrote it in a German book about the family um, that I contributed a chapter to, that children formed in that society where people are doing justice to one another. And what is justice? Justice is love. Pope Benedict says, do not separate out justice from love. Justice and love, he said, is giving every person that look of love they crave. Everyone there, do it. Anyone mm-hmm. who comes across your path, beginning in your family. Mm. It's giving them what they're due, what, what they have yes. the right to, to begin with. They have with. a right and to. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, and I think that's so profound. If you're wanting to pick up Helen Alvarez's latest book, it's Religious Freedom After the Sexual Revolution, A Catholic Guide. Can you give us a little bit of a snapshot of how religious freedom ties into the sexual revolution? Yes. So right now, the biggest pressure on Catholic institutions is from the state's sexual orthodoxy, which says Mm -hmm. sex, marriage, and parenting have nothing to do with one another. Sex is for the moment. It doesn't point to tomorrow, not to kids, not to commitment, not to marriage. And people have a right to determine their own sexual identity, transgenderism. The state cannot prefer procreation or relationships where parents know their children. Therefore, they have to make same-sex marriage and opposite-sex marriage equal. The state is really cramming a lot of new sexual orthodoxy down the throats Mm -hmm. of every institution, including religious ones. I felt that the Catholic Church was doing, you know telling them we can't violate our rules, but I thought we actually were kind of losing the war while we're winning some of these religious freedom games because we're not actually speaking to the public in these controversies. Mm -hmm. At the same time, we're demanding religious freedom, that we want it for something that is beautiful. We want to continue to witness this, not because we have weird idiosyncratic rules or the bishop made me do it, but because it's a good witness and the entire public will benefit from it. That's the message I wanted them to give. And the book is kind of a blueprint for how to do that. To have those day-to-day conversations. And I think that's part of what I've always really appreciated about your work is that you come from the legal perspective, from the educational perspective, from the perspective of the church, but you relate it to where the culture actually is and where the conversation is happening on a cultural level as well. And I, this is why it's impacting the dating scene. This is why we see people who are not going on dates today, who are not mm-hmm. getting married, or when they do, they're fizzling out very, very quickly. I mean, I've been hearing left and right over the last couple of weeks from people whose marriages have been struggling so profoundly in the first couple of years of marriage. Mm-hmm. And it's because of this crisis of where you're talking about social justice being important to people, but not within the context of the home and the family first. Yeah, no, the, sometimes I remember my husband saying to me very early in the marriage, I was, a friend was having a party and she said, hey, she said, I didn't get married, but I'm having a birthday party and I expect you all to spend the money I've spent on your weddings to come to my party. My husband just looked at me and he goes, we don't have that kind of money. Are you actually going to do that? He goes, is that fair to us or is that 
just, you know, you have this friendship and you want to do this. It's, you know, we've worked hard for that. I'm not sure we can do that, Helen. And, and I'm, he's, you know, thinking, he's going, you've got, you got to think of us. You have to think of us in the long run. You're not single anymore. You can't run around all your grad school friends whenever they call you. Um, this being kind to the other, the way you would be if it was a student, a patient, a client, a colleague, like the sort of kindness we keep demanding in the world. Sometimes, sometimes, this is so cliche, but we do forget to show it at home. And he'd say to me, be as nice to me as you are to strangers sometimes, Helen. And mm. that would hit home. Mm. That's something we all and, need to hear over and over yep. again. <laughs> oh, no. He knew, he knew how to tell me when the rubber hit the road. And um, that... The amount of time and kindness you have to show at home, it's not that you, you know, my family uber alles and nothing else matters. It, it's a training ground for then seeing other people as somebody's child. I mean, this is the great thing about children, right? First, it's like mine, mine, mine. Don't touch them. Then, you know, your kids get older. I started teaching grad students and I'd look at them and every once in a while I'd slip up and I'd call one of them honey and I realized that I was thinking of them as my children. Mm. And, and, then, and then you realize that everybody's somebody's child. The family mm. is the training ground for, the, for what is owed to other people mm. and, and for loving them in a very attentive way. And if children see that, they can give it to other people. So there's so much writing about that. There was a peace activist I used. Her name was Elise Boulding, B-O-U-L-D-I-N-G. She wrote a book called One Small Plot of Heaven about the role of the family for building peace. Um, the man who invented the Head Start program wrote about it. Um, it's, it's a huge theme. John Paul II, the family, you know, as, as, as this little society that teaches you the school of love. Um, again, I don't mean to say you stop at the family, but we're ridiculously naive if we think that how we treat one another is not the beginning of everybody's understanding of social justice, beginning with our kids and our spouses. That's Helen Alvary, professor of law at Antonin Scalia Law School at George Mason University. Her latest book's available. We posted links on social media. Just follow me at Timmery, T-I-M-M-E-R-I-E, where we're also tagging her. The book's called Religious Freedom After the Sexual Revolution, A Catholic Guide. I'll be right back here on Trending with Helen Alvary to discuss how feminism is impacting the permanence of marriage. That idea that we get married and believe that we stay married and then we do stay married when we find ourselves in those difficult situations. I'll be right back here on Trending with Timory during our weekly marriage hour. You're listening to Trending with Timory, where you can discuss what matters most to you. Join the conversation, 888-914-9149. I'm still here. Baby's still cooking. The news shall come one day. Just stay tuned with me, especially on social media. We'll let you know as things continue to progress. We're expecting baby girl number two any day now. I really did. I posted this on social media. I thought I was going to be a boy mom. Totally hasn't happened. Girl number two. Um, and the sleeplessness has started early. I was up for four hours last night, wide awake. My daughter is suddenly having sleeping issues out of nowhere after being a pro 12-hour sleeper. And then the night before, I just couldn't sleep. The one night she's like slept well in the last five days, and I was up for five hours. I mean, come on, half an hour, an hour or two, the baby has to be coming because I had insomnia the nights before my first daughter came. So, Stay tuned. I'm hoping. Come on, we got to get something going over the next day or so. 
Uh, But while we're here on our weekly marriage hour on trending, I want to talk about feminism's impact on the idea that marriage is permanent till death do us part. I'm seeing a lot of people even in the Catholic world, no surprise, we have this 50% divorce rate of those people who are actually getting divorced, and it continues to be a trend even among Catholics in many ways. And it's interesting because I think what really impacted this idea of permanence within marriage the most are two things. One, this decline in religion, but two, how we have allowed babies to impact or not impact what marriage is. We took babies out of sex and sex outside of marriage, and lo and behold, that glue of what sex is for and what parents are for, what that loving relationship is for with the bond and support of family life, it's really destroyed what it means to be male and female and what even a marriage is meant to look like. And so joining me today on Trending is Helen Alvarez. She's a professor of law at the Antonin Scalia Law School as w- at George Mason University, and she wrote the recent book that just came out over the last couple of months, Religious Freedom After the Sexual Revolution, A Catholic Guy. You can find it now available where books are sold. Helen, let's talk about per- the permanence of marriage and how feminism has completely obliterated this Why do you think that is and what has had the largest impact on the idea that has always been a part of marriage in most all cultures and civilizations that marriage is permanent? You get married and you stay married. A couple of things. First, um, I want to give people a little uh, heart and hope that uh, several of the data points are interesting now. First, um, people who actually practice their faith are a lot less likely to get divorced. And, and that's been true for a while, and it's, they're really outliers now. Um, second, um, people who don't cohabit before they get married have really mm-hmm. improved their odds. Um, the other thing is people who are fortunate enough to have, you know, finished school, graduated college, um, they really um, have lower divorce rates than others. They, um, they tend to get married a little later, um, getting married before 20. We don't want to frighten people. It can happen. It can succeed. But it is a risk factor generally. Um, so, you know, people who are religious, they do, they do well and they, they stay married more often. And it's, you know, and, and it's, it's way above the 50% rate. And we're glad for that. However, the whole idea about marriage, I mean, my gosh, has it shifted. Several things have happened. First, the idea that marriage is per se oppressive to women, that somehow it immediately shoves them into a particular um, kind of role and um, they, they it, it cabins them. It, it, it's got givens. It's got presumptions about how you're supposed to behave. And hey, we all want to be our own person and break all the stereotypes and play outside the sandbox when, oh, marriage just restricts you. So, so that's been a first problem. Another problem is that instead of thinking of marriage as, you know, most people's vocation, which will involve a little, you know, um, self-discipline and self-sacrifice and make room for the other, we've come to see marriage more. And the, the guys who, who talk about this really well are Brad Wilson. Cox and the other writers at the Institute for Family Studies online, we've come to see marriage more as a capstone, not as a growing together. You wait until you have all your stuff together. You've graduated school. You got the job of your dreams. You've traveled with your friends. You've posted all the great pictures on Instagram about it. And now, now you're ready to settle down. As opposed to 
I'm looking for someone to share my life with, to have children with, together, to take care of one another, and then the two of us together to look to this third thing together, which ends up being super glue, um, that, that is instead of looking just to myself or just to you, we now have a third thing that we do together that ends up being the most important thing we ever do, which is taking care of these children that we've made. So... Um, the other problem, of course, is that now 70%, actually it's probably a little more than that, of all marriages are preceded by cohabitation. Now, again, this is less likely among religious folks, but um, but, but 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 Catholics do it too. And um, cohabitation is, is after getting married, you know, when you're a teenager, it's the next biggest predictor of divorce, which is ironic because, of course, the people who do it think that they're helping themselves by getting used to each other. But instead what happens is all the work that the couple would otherwise be doing to get to know one another and thinking about whether this is the right person and, you know, thinking about their character and, and their quality of their love and do they have the quality of, of a good adult, a good parent, a good spouse. They've they've sort of fooled themselves that they're very, very close because they've had a sexual relationship before they've really gotten to know each other really well. And this leads them to mistakenly think that they're more united than they are. The famous, famous sociological argument on this, and it's, um, it really rings true. It's not a religious argument. It's just the major sociological read of cohabitation. is called Sliding Not Deciding by a guy named Scott Stanley, and you can find it online. And he says, basically, more and more couples are beginning their lives sexual relationship, then they intertwine, you know, their their apartment, their house. They think they're more tied up than they are, but they're actually in an explicitly uncommitted relationship. They then kind of slide into marriage. Why? Well, we've lived together. I've given you the best part of my 20s. Everybody thinks we're going to get married. Hey, people will think I'm kind of yucky if I moved in with you and then you just leave me and I go live with someone else. What does that make me? Um, our parents think we're getting married. We, there's even New York Times articles about couples who have cohabited serially who have like split Spotify, Netflix, and Audible payments that they have with old cohabiting relationships because they they intertwine themselves on these things. And then it's like, we should just get married. It's too hard. It's inertia. So the sliding, not deciding effect is one of the biggest threats to marriage. And now like 70% of people are doing it. Mm-hmm. People who never thought they would. That, that was something oh, that maybe was no yeah. key to them. Or right. I know for many women, what they didn't dream of. I think especially for girls, it just isn't what I dreamed of. And for many men, it's just what became comfortable, right? And Well, yeah, there. if you actually look at the data, the men, it's kind of like more of a continuation of dating. They don't think, mm-hmm. oh, well, you know, this is trial marriage. And the women are thinking, we're on the marriage track. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. They always do. I want to come back to what you mentioned about a marriage as a capstone today instead of growing together. I think that's a really poignant uh, statement because we tend to move on to the next capstone in our lives. Okay, you know, I graduated high school. Boom, I'm doing college. Boom, graduate school. Okay, you know, what after that? What post-grad work? You could go on and on. And especially for women, uh, it's difficult because there aren't conversations that we're having early on. I think really what should be had in high school, you know, about the idea of things that impact marriage and make marriage difficult, such as student loan debt. And what if you want to be a mom, but you're married to a certain level of student loan debt now, and that's going to be really difficult. I cannot tell you, Timory, how many people criticize me for paying for my kid's college. 
And my reaction as a woman who's thinking about the family a good bit of every day was, if I could take my money and free them from debt and they can get married because of it, I'm good with that. <laughs> I, I, I was... I remember when we saw the college bills, my husband and I, I cried the first bill I saw. I was like, they can't be serious. This cannot be. I literally cried. And my wonderful, wonderful husband said to me, Helen, this isn't about money. It's about courage. He said, we said we wanted to pay for their college. We want them to be free in their 20s. We're just going to have to figure out a way to do it. And I, you know, just finished paying off pretty enormous loans. But there's nothing else I want to do with the money than make them free. People will complain they don't feel truly invested. And maybe particular kids, that would be true. But it's hard enough to make your way financially in this world, in a gig economy where more and more jobs are requiring more education. And I just, for me, I I can't tell you how many people had this knee-jerk reaction that, oh, well, you should never have done that. And now I've got kids in their 20s and they are, you know, free of that debt. And I mean, not everybody can do it, but, but we sort of, took me like, I guess I've been paying for it for 12 years now, and I'll pay for it for one more. But there was nothing else I'd rather do with the money than make them free in that way. Mm-hmm. And it allows them the freedom entering into marriage, you know, that they, they can That was sooner. my thought. Yeah, they can sooner and they can go in with a perspective of, you know, I'm not jumping to try and pay for that next thing, which we always are, right? Our entire lives, but the perspective should be different. Saving for something, yes. 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 (laughs) Exactly. I mean, hopefully you're saving for a house then instead of saving for the next 10 to 20 years of student loan debt. Yes. And and of course, the other thing, you know, is is getting your material consumption expectations kind of in order. Um, Mm -hmm. People always, I have female students in particular ask me, you know, how did you do this? You're a mother, you're a lawyer, this and that. And I say, I never lived up to my income. I always made myself just free enough to leave the job if my kids needed it, if my husband needed it, if I was miserable, you know, keeping, you know, I'm a huge, anyone who knows me knows I'm just a huge secondhand maven. I love secondhand everything. And I'm not, obsessive about pinching a penny, but it, it frees me to, to pinch some. <laughs> mm-hmm. And you've been able to serve the church along the way as well, while exactly. raising a family, and, yes. too. And to be free to do that and not to have to chase the dollar all the time. I'm, I'm, I'm fortunate. I know that being able to be a law professor and have a wonderful schedule for my kids and also to be able to serve the church. Um, and, and one of the things, again, I tell students early in your marriage, before you have kids, right away, and early in your career before you get married, yeah, you know, pay your dues, pay your dues, pay your dues. And then when you're valuable to the employer, you say, you don't want to train up somebody new, right? I'm a, I'm, you love me. I'm a mom. I like this place. I'll be good to you. You be good to me. <laughs> and let's just get a little more flexibility in here, okay? <laughs> and those were sort of, it doesn't, again, I'm not giving a prescription for all. But keeping money in its place and being a good employee so that when you need your flexibility, you might ask for it are just some strategies. And I think those are important. It's ironic that we're talking about this when we're talking about the theme is how has feminism impacted the idea that marriage is meant to be permanent? Well, money does really impact that, but also our perspective of where we view ourselves, especially as women within the context of contribution to marriage, and perhaps we're putting too high of a value of ourselves in terms of what we contribute financially or what we achieve that then contributes financially. And there's, you know, a lot of debate with among women, you know, in two camps or three camps, however you want to split it between the working mom 
and the non-working mom. And you know, even if you are working, wherever you're at, having that freedom, uh, as you said, to never live dependent on the income, that's a choice to make so that you are free to be present to your family. And it's interesting because just in the last week, there are two young women that I know of who are, you know, in those early years of marriage. And for the first time, they're having to say, oh, wow, you know, here I am trying to be a stay-at-home mom or at least, you know, work part-time from home. And I'm having to have a budget. And it's really yeah. difficult. And I looked at one the other day, Helen, and I said, you know what? Going to the thrift store is a great thing. Because she said, yeah. oh, there's so many things I need for my boys. And I said, the thrift store is great. There are wonderful yeah. things that last a no. long time. No, it's very, very true. And again, I realize that some people working on minimum wage, et cetera, they can't, they can't dream of, of staying home. It doesn't work for them. But, but for those who can, um, you know, one of the things about feminism is that it promoted the idea that, again, the sameness thing, everybody out into the cubicle, everybody out into the workforce, the, the interesting data, and this data has been true for a long time. If you ask women what they want, you know, the famous um, Canterbury Tales, The Wife of Bath, what do women want? They want what they want. That's what they want. And if you ask women what they want, most women with children will say they'd like to work part-time mm-hmm. or not at all. And, yep. and there is always a number, like a third, who wants to work full-time. And if you ask about what makes a happy marriage, is it what some feminist strains have said? Absolute dead equal everything. Don't separate tasks by anything stereotypically sex-based, you know, based, that she does this or he does that. Well, it kind of turns out that the marriages that do best are not the ones that have this strict 50-50. It's more of a, I would call it a mindset of abundance. Oh, you're so good at that. I love that. I think I can contribute this. You know, it, it turned out my husband was better at laundry and I was better at the finances. But on the other hand, I really was good at cooking and he was really better at fixing stuff. So, mm. you know, some of the stuff was gender typical. Some of it was not. It wasn't this, this 50-50. And it wasn't, I have to work this kind of job and make this kind of money. It turns out those are not the happiest marriages. The happiest are where the woman is doing what she really desires. And in most cases, that's going to involve giving some preference to children where they're there. And she feels more at peace. Again, not every woman, but it does turn out it's an awful lot of them. And a lot of women who are in the career mind mindset uh, have this pull, this tug and pull. And I think sometimes that's a responsibility of a family and especially of a husband to help her in reconciling and finding that balance, right? Of sometimes mm-hmm. you know, there's this, but there's also that that you're desiring oh, and yeah. that's okay. That's perfectly yes. okay. Oh, and nowadays the number of women who, you know, with the flexibility, with the different kinds of work that are available, with the remote work, you got to want to make it work. I mean, you've got to be a good worker. This is not, you know, mm-hmm. I used to say that motherhood taught me to drop and give me 50 lifestyle. Sure, <laughs> I could have my summers at home and I'm, you know, I'm a law professor. I'll be home for the next month. This is great. But when somebody needs something, it had to be done. When I had to publish for tenure, I had to get up at 4.45 and I wrote from 4.45 to 7 every morning, right? Why? So I could see my kids after school, right after school, right? And so... Mm-hmm. It's, you know, it's, and, and if I didn't get something done and the kids needed me and then I couldn't start it again till 10, it kind of taught me what I came to call the drop and give me 50 lifestyle. Mm-hmm. And it, it's a little brutal. It's not forever. I'm through it now. <laughs> <laughs> They're grown. But, um, you know, you can have these things, this flexibility, 
um, to, to do your preference, which for a lot of women just do feel this tug to just give more time. Just time. Time becomes this great luxury to just be with them and listen in leisure, you know. Um, but it does require a kind of discipline and drop and give you 50 in the time when you're not doing that. And that's mm-hmm. a little painful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it can even be in simple things, too, such as, you know, I, my text messages. I, I had so many text messages coming in and important things that needed to be addressed. And my husband's saying, you know, you've got this, this, and this. I, Please just stop telling me. <laughs> I told him at one point, you know, the baby's awake for two more hours here. And I can deal with that when she's gone to bed and he's like yeah. oh you're right you know it's true because those little things can distract us but also the big important oh, things God. such as making sure there's food on the table still and and frankly i you I mean you're a different generation than me we were not you know texting and emailing on our phones to think about the kind of interruptions that i had at work yeah, I had a fax coming in the house. You know, those old hot curly faxes. They would come. <laughs> they would drop at your feet. These little round pieces of paper. I knew that you know I could get a call. Um, but but what people your age who are just becoming parents have in the way of the phone. You can get, it's like any kind of discipline, you know, you can stop smoking, you can stop eating too many sweets, you can stop looking at the phone all the time, but the expectations that are set for you all in your work regarding paying attention to your phone, that is a whole nother level of difficulty that I did not have. Yeah, and it requires a really strong boundary with people who sometimes don't have boundaries and you have to develop it. Helen, it's been wonderful to speak with you. That's Helen Alvarez. You can find her latest book, Religious Freedom After the Sexual Revolution, A Catholic Guide. We're posting links on social media. It's our weekly marriage hour. I'll be right back here on Trending talking about sometimes how we feel like we're failing in the season of Advent and how to pray for your marriage, especially when it's struggling. blooming it's an advent song happy advent if i'm still kicking tomorrow if my baby's not kicking outside the womb i will be with you or at least if she's not kicking trying to come out Uh, no baby yet we're on labor watch we will stay tuned Uh, but it's our weekly marriage hour and two things i wanted to talk about uh, in these last moments are embracing failure when you're in a liturgical season and you want to be doing more, you know, we talk about it a lot at Lent, you know, okay, you're a weekend, you're two weeks and you still haven't made any commitment or you're totally failing at the commitment you didn't make. And we've talked a lot about Advent. It's my favorite liturgical season of the year, a very special time of anticipation, uh, preparing for the coming of Christ at Christmas celebration final judgment to receive him the Eucharist in so many ways we're preparing or we're supposed to be preparing but maybe you're hitting hitting this point. Where you're like, I'm not doing all those Catholic things. 
I still haven't even done my Christmas shopping. Or if you're me, I'm sitting here going, I could have this baby tonight and I don't have any gifts wrapped. And I still have, you know, all these things to do to prepare and trying to figure out how exactly you're celebrating, especially if you're home and all the things you're missing out on that could be fun, at least for me, because I'm like, I can't keep making plans. I'm tired. <laughs> I've been having contractions. And uh, it's easy to be so distracted from Advent and what Christmas is. And then it's easy to be distracted by all those things that we've turned this season into, you know, all of the Christmas pageants for, you know, nieces and nephews that we've had going on, you know, what we can or can't commit to, you know, the Christmas parties, uh, the for work, for wherever it might be. And then maybe you just really want to make it to Mass. I know my thing, you know, yesterday and today, I just want to go to Mass, just want to go to Mass. And there was up four hours in the middle of the night last night, five in the middle of the night the night before, and on and on it goes the last number of days. And you feel like you're maybe floating in life. So many things can happen. And you're seeing other people maybe posting on social media doing all of these great Catholic things or you want to be putting the Advent wreath, you know, together and lighting the Advent wreath and actually praying, but maybe you haven't even had a family meal. That's okay. It was sometimes if we just aren't there and it's been difficult, that's okay. But it's also good to say, okay, I can make a resolution. I can stop today or I can cancel some plans or, you know, am I taking the time to pray? Have, have I, have I actually hit a good prayer routine or has the busyness of the season disrupted that? You know, God is so happy to meet us where we're at. Yes, he asks for more, but he really does meet us where we are at. And this is why this season of Advent and Lent, you have this time of preparation and a lot of focus is placed on penance. We've been talking a lot about confession this week. There is no better time and I know I'm saying, hey, you may feel like a failure this week, but there's no better time than to try to plan a time to go to confession, to actually put it on your calendar, because all of those things that seem so important that sometimes we allow to become disordered in our lives and our vocations, and even in a liturgical season such as Advent and preparing for Christmas, all of those things should come into alignment when our conscience is in right alignment, when our conscience is clear, when we see our responsibilities, when we see our weaknesses, when we have the humility to acknowledge the wrong that we're doing and the good that we're called to and to receive and be healed by the blood of the lamb in the grace of the sacrament. So if you feel like you're floundering, you're failing, check in. Am I getting my morning and night prayer? Am I doing my examination of conscience? And have I made time to prepare for Christ by going to confession? Those three simple things, morning prayer, night prayer, and confession. You still have how many days? We've got 10 days till Christmas. Nine, if you're really focused on Christmas Eve, it might be a little hard to get, you know, <laughs> to get into confession on Christmas Eve, but I know there are good priests out there who will still uh, make the time. So make the appointment. If you have to call a parish office, find a church that has more confession times, but really pull back. Maybe just wake up 10 minutes earlier to pray in the morning. Or for me, I know the big thing is, is don't just leave my prayer until I'm getting into bed. Go and sit in the chair in my room and pray before I get into bed. If the day's been too busy and I've not quite carved at the, out that night time routine that I'm supposed to be working through, that's my goal, but everything has been so busy and it doesn't necessarily happen in the timing or routine that is ideal or hoped for. You're listening to Trending with Tim Murray here on Relevant Radio. 
It's our weekly marriage hour, and my heart goes out to so many people who have been writing in and calling and sharing about just how difficult marriage has been lately. And kind of like that same theme of maybe you feel like you're failing during Advent or failing going into Christmas. Um, There's so many things that can weigh on us at any point during the year, but I think especially at Christmas, a time where we're supposed to be joyfully anticipating and celebrating the Christ child, we tend to be begrudgingly and resentfully spending more money than ever on Christmas presents, perhaps, or being overcommitted and tired and haggard, or feeling like, you know, I've got to get the cookie Christmas cookies made, or I want to participate in this particular Christmas event. Uh, you know, there are so many things that can go on, and it can really pull on us individually and then pull on us within the context of marriage. You're also coming up on the end of the year, various deadlines um, that can happen, you know, whether you're in college, you have finals, whether you're at work, all of these things that are happening. Maybe you're just thinking, I really want to get my tax return in, or sorry, my last donation of the year in so that I have a bigger tax return. Not that that's the only reason you make donations, but there are so many things on that to-do list that you want to get done, and the days and the hours and the moments are ticking away with next to nothing available in terms of time or energy, and your marriage is struggling, you're busy with everything. Maybe you just feel numb. This is what I'm hearing from a lot of people. Maybe you even just feel like, you know, what? I've done everything. I'm throwing in the towel. Whatever happens, happens in this marriage. And I want to talk about how we can pray for our marriage in this moment, because I think it's really important. First of all, are you praying for your marriage? Are you praying for your spouse? It's actually really easy to say no. Don't be embarrassed if you're not the only person who's saying no right now. But now's the time to start praying for your marriage. You know, it could be as simple as, you know what? Mother Mary, I'm going to give my marriage to you and I'm going to ask you, consecrate to you, and I'm going to ask you to intervene. Help me to be the wife I'm called to. Help my husband to be the husband that he's called to. Help me to be the, you know, feel, to meet the needs of my spouse. I find when I'm struggling the most within the context of marriage, I need to pause and pray, help me to meet my spouse's needs rather than expecting my spouse to meet my needs and make me happy at this moment. Which sometimes that's what we think marriage is about, about the other person just making us happy rather than what Jesus Christ told us that the son of man, that Jesus Christ himself has come not to be served, but to serve and to give himself, to give his life as a ransom for many. So prayer, if you're not praying for your marriage, start praying for your marriage. Second, one of the best things I truly believe um, that we can do in our prayer journey is to incorporate some form of abstinence or fasting, abstaining, you know, maybe you abstain from salt for a whole day. For me, that's a real sacrifice. I love salt. You know, maybe you abstain from a meal for the day and offer that out up for your spouse, what your spouse might be struggling with, what you might be struggling with, with regard to respecting your spouse or how the two of you interact, but fast and offer that in prayer, this small sacrifice that leaves you hungry or leaves you wanting in some way. That that's actually good and that can be lifted up and elevated as a sacrifice for the person who you've committed to in marriage. And it's a reminder that we're called to make sacrifices in marriage and it will inspire you to other sacrifices. So again, start praying for your spouse. Start fasting in small ways or big ways. 
Make sure that you guys have talked, especially, you know, if you are both practicing Catholics, about making sure that you're keeping each other accountable, that you are both keeping to a prayer routine, a prayer schedule, that, you know, there are times where, you know, I check in with my husband, you know, hey, I know today was really rushed, you're leaving, rushing out of the house, you know, just a reminder, make sure you prayed if you didn't have time to pray this morning. Uh, and vice versa, you know, having that that check-in that you know that each of you are praying, but then taking the time at some point in your day to pray together. Maybe that's a rosary. Maybe that's a decade of the rosary. Maybe that's a brief prayer at the end of the day. But finding that time to pray together. These things are so important. And these are the things that will help to strengthen our marriages. We can talk about all the practical things. And we did that yesterday here on Trending. But we also have to talk about the truth that we make a covenant before God. And it is only through supernatural grace that holds our marriages together. It gives us the grace and the sacrifice and the love that is necessary. That is that balm that helps us to not put me, myself, and I at the center of the marriage, but to put the other person in that great mission that we're being called to. So how are you going to help your struggling marriage? Or, you know, yes, catholictherapist.com. Yes, you know, looking at all of these things that might be going on, anxiety, depression, you know, needing to change things with work. But also focus on prayer. Those four things. Start praying for your spouse. Find ways to incorporate fasting or abstinence. Make sure you're both praying separately. Not Don't accuse your spouse of not praying, but hey, just checking in. How's your prayer life going? And number four, find a simple way to start praying together. You're listening to Trending with Tim Ray here on Relevant Radio. It's been our weekly marriage hour. It's great to be with you. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast, relevantradio.com forward slash trending or wherever you listen and share this episode with a friend. Coming up next is a family rosary across America. Please pray for me and my family. I hope to be with you tomorrow if I'm not in labor expecting our second baby girl. This is Tim Ray from Trending with Tim Ray. Assuming I'm not in labor, Friday we're unpacking your questions from a Catholic perspective. I'll also be joined by celebrity and royal matchmaker Christine Pineda, matchmaking us lowly peasants as well. We'll talk about Jennifer Coolidge and Cher and Hollywood stars who are going for younger partners. Can age gaps work? We're also going to dive into the topic of the new show, Love for the Ages. So join me Friday, 6 p.m. Central on Relevant Radio or the Relevant Radio app.